to Wild Trekker. I'm George Toombs here in Montreal, and this is the 33rd episode. Wild Trekker is a series of podcasts, a writer's notebook, audio chapters from ongoing works, soundscapes, adventures, interviews with fascinating people, reflections, original radio plays, reportage, stories behind stories, jam sessions, and more. Wild Trekker is a fluid kind of sound art, I hope you enjoy it. So this is the fifth episode in a seven-part series I'm devoting to the human machine, the history of the human machine, that is, and today's episode concerns the great German philosopher Leibniz. By the middle of the 17th century, the revolution in natural philosophy has created a new intellectual environment in Western Europe. The mechanical philosophy of Galileo, Descartes and Hobbes, and the revival of classical atomism by Gassendi seem capable of sustaining unimpeded investigations in natural philosophy, of building up bodies of truth and natural morality on the solid structure of tight, self-contained reason, and of applying new insights to the development of successful technologies. This, in turn, adds prestige to the new way of thinking, which is taken to correspond to the natural universe and to be of immense practical benefit. It's as if Sir Francis Bacon's scientific and technocratic dream articulated in the New Atlantis were becoming a reality. Scientific establishments are growing up across Europe as living laboratories for model-closed communities, mobilized around a twin goal, the development of knowledge through the methodical testing of new observations and experiences, and the practical application of that knowledge in the form of profitable new techniques. Many discoveries, particularly in physics and biology, are made as a result. There can be little doubt that mechanical philosophy and atomism challenge the Christian religion as it is then known and practiced. 
mechanical philosophy through its claim to offer explicit and absolute correspondences between number and nature, and atomism by picturing the indivisible atoms that are the ultimate building blocks of matter. Mechanical philosophy and atomism, moreover, offer attractive and compelling alternatives to the Aristotelian, scholastic, and even Neoplatonic philosophies sometimes used to buttress the Christian religion. The new schools of thought also challenge the Christian view of the soul and the essence of human life itself. The Cartesian compromise, that is, the one operated by René Descartes when he came up with dualism, comes to be discredited simply because it's hard to conceive of an immaterial soul located nonetheless in a specific material part of the body. Gassendi's atomism contains a Christian metaphysic, but materialism nonetheless proves unsettling for revealed religion. It's on to this scene of ferment and change that comes Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, who lived from 1646 to 1716. If he takes up the idea of the human machine at all, it's as part of an all-embracing metaphysical system designed to close the rift between mechanical philosophy, atomism, and revealed religion. And by revealed religion, I mean the faith system of Christian churches in Western Europe. Leibniz develops this system and calls it monodology in an attempt to rescue man from the demeaning status of a mere collocation of atoms, thereby restoring to humans the God-given pre-established harmony of body and being, but also a measure of responsibility for their own destiny. By coming up with the idea of monads, indivisible, spiritualized building blocks of nature, Leibniz seeks to remedy the defective dualistic compromise of Descartes, to sweep aside the stark mechanical prescription of Hobbes, and to overcome that aspect of atomism which creates a weak link from matter directly to sensation. Later on, during the 18th century, the materialist La Métrie will complain in the 1750s that Leibniz has spiritualized nature. We'll come back to this in the next episode of Wild Tracker, which is devoted to La Métrie. His assessment, La Métrie's that is, is accurate as far as it goes, but it doesn't do justice to Leibniz, who is a universal man writing incessantly, publishing little and bearing on his shoulders the political, religious, philosophical, and scientific contradictions of late 17th century and early 18th century Europe. 
closer to the mark, I find, is Kierkenen's comment in 1960 that Leibniz has developed the spiritualist mechanism. The soul is immaterial and has no relationship of causality with the external world. All the changes produced in the soul arise from its own internal nature, according to laws already contained in it from the moment of its creation, but which reflect the external world and the entire universe after its own fashion. In fact, once Leibniz is placed in the setting of the human machine, it's clear that he brings together each of the dimensions of man that I've considered so far in previous podcasts. He brings them together in a new and original synthesis. The human machine, man in God's image and likeness, man as microcosm, humans as self-mastering individuals, humans as psychological beings, and finally humans as endowed with reason and devoted to happiness. Leibniz seeks, through his metaphysics, to redefine the role of God and a machine-like human in a clockwork universe and thereby bring about a fusion of religion with a new mechanical philosophy, or at least the parts of religion and the parts of mechanism that he chooses to keep. So one of the hallmarks of Leibniz's entire career is reconciling two worldviews, the worldview developing around mechanical philosophy and the worldview of the Western Christian faith system. Given the intellectual ferment and conflicts of the 17th century, it's perhaps understandable that Leibniz's life work should be characterized by an eclectic desire to bring about a vast synthesis of knowledge. He's a German Protestant metaphysician steeped in Aquinas and the ancients, and a court historian working for a Hanoverian duke and longing nostalgically for the former unity and idealized hierarchical order of the medieval Holy Roman Empire. He's a jurist, seeking to recodify and systematize German law, which he hopes will serve the good of mankind. And he's also something of a hermetic, possibly serving as secretary to the Rosicrucians of Hanover. Leibniz is an irrepressible optimist who will be subject to ridicule during the French Enlightenment, particularly at the hands of Voltaire, for Leibniz's bright view that our world is necessarily the best of all possible worlds. He's also a keen observer of nature and a technologist. He's a mining engineer, a brilliant mathematician, and the co-discoverer of the integral and differential calculus, who invents one of Europe's most successful early automatic calculus. Wow, so many achievements. Leibniz is universally acknowledged to have been a difficult thinker. According to the modern scholar Nicholas Rescher, Leibniz possessed an astounding range of interests and capacities. 
mathematics, physics, geology, philosophy, logic, philology, theology, history, jurisprudence, politics, and economics are all subjects to which he made original contributions of the first rank. The universality of the range of his abilities and achievements is without rival in modern times. By prodigious energy, ability, and effort, Leibniz managed to be three persons in one, a scholar, a public servant and man of affairs, and a courtier, without letting anyone suffer at the expense of the others. Moreover, as Leibniz's biographer E.J. Ayton has noted, he contributed to all these fields, not as a dilettante, but as an innovator, able to lead specialists. Leibniz may have been three persons in one, but Leibniz is also highly focused in the view of scholar Leroy Lemker, the best-known English-language editor of his works. Leibniz pursues four lifelong projects, legal reform, religious unification in Europe, the advancement of science and technology, and the well-being of humans and their happiness. These four lifelong projects can be traced back to the same motive, and they all point forward to the same ultimate objective synthesis, reconciliation, bringing together old and new, God and the material world, the soul and the body, Catholic and Protestant, the Christian faith system and modern science, justice and politics, one European nation and another. Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz is born in Leipzig in 1646 into a Lutheran family noted for its piety. Although he attends school, he largely teaches himself in the library of his father, who dies when he's still a boy. He enters the University of Leipzig at the age of just 14 and soon aspires to reconcile the works of Galileo, Bacon, and Descartes with the medieval scholastic interpretation of Aristotle. So here, once again, the key word is reconcile. In my view, Leibniz is consistent, reasonably linear, and having once taken up an idea, naturally subjects it to modification, but rarely to outright rejection. In the Combinatory Art, or De Arte Combinatoria, which Leibniz submits in 1666 in order to qualify for a position in the philosophical faculty in Leipzig, he begins developing ideas which will later culminate in the universal characteristic and the calculus. It's less important to examine the structure of this work in the academic form than prevalent of demonstration, corollaries for disputation, definitions, problems, etc., than it is to understand the importance it comes to have for Leibniz and the way in which he integrates this work into his philosophical system. Well, from my point of view, four key ideas arise out of the combinatory art. Leibniz praises Hobbes for having rightly stated that everything done by our mind is a computation. He later claims to have found the means to accomplish in all realms of thought, through algebra and analysis, what Descartes has accomplished through arithmetic and geometry. Such a language, he writes in a further work on the universal science characteristic in the 1670s, would amount to a Kabbalah or mystical vocables or to the arithmetic of Pythagorean numbers or to the characteristic language of the Magi, that is, of the wise. 
I suspected something of such a great discovery when I was still a boy, and I inserted a description of it in the little book on the combinatory art, which I published during my adolescence. I can demonstrate with geometrical rigor that such a language is possible, indeed that its foundation can be easily laid within a few years by a number of cooperating scholars. The study of mathematical analysis provides me with the most genuine and elegant compendium of this general analysis of human ideas. I pursued this study so intensely that I doubt whether many contemporaries have invested more work in the same pursuit. Leibniz then goes on to say that this method can be applied to the realms of philosophy, jurisprudence, medicine, music, physics, and theology. In fact, this characteristic art, he says, of which I conceived the idea, would contain the true organon of a general science of everything that is subject matter for human reasoning, but would be endowed throughout with the demonstrations of an evident calculus. Since no definite result has yet been reached as to the way these signs must be formed, we shall meanwhile follow the example of mathematics for the future formation and use the letters of the alphabet or any other arbitrary notation which, in the course of our progress, will suggest itself as most convenient. It's interesting to note that the alphabet provides Leibniz with a convenient set of characters or symbols. It also justifies him in his claim to have invented an entirely new philosophical language, which, by an ordered method, can lead him to find all things with their theorems and whatever is possible to investigate concerning them. And finally, this new philosophical language will make reasoning into a form of calculation at the reach of most people. What must be achieved, in fact, is this, Leibniz writes, that every paralogism be recognized as an error of calculation, and that every sophism, when expressed in this new kind of notation, appear as a solecism or barbarism to be corrected easily by the laws of this philosophical grammar. Once this is done, then, when a controversy arises, disputation will no more be needed between the two philosophers than between two computers. It will suffice that, pen in hand, they sit down to their abacus and, calling in a friend if they so wish, say to each other, let us calculate. The combinatory art has often been seen as an anticipation of modern computers and even artificial intelligence itself. And I remember interviewing Raymond Kurzweil, and that interview features in one of the early episodes of Wild Trekker. And Kurzweil told me he praised Leibniz for the discovery of the basis of modern computation. However, there is a huge difference between Leibniz and many purely materialistic proponents of artificial intelligence today. Leibniz understands that a calculator, no matter how sophisticated, will never be a person fully conscious of what it's doing. As Leibniz says, by means of the soul or form, there is in us a true unity which corresponds to what we call I. This can have no place in artificial machines or in a simple mass of matter, however organized it may be. 
Leibniz writes to Hobbes on two occasions in 1670, apparently without ever receiving an answer, and admires the English materialist for two works, in particular De Corpore and De Cive. In 1673, Leibniz invents a calculating machine and presents it at the Royal Society of London. Two years later, he does groundbreaking work in the area of integral and differential calculus, although his right to lay claim to this discovery is hotly contested in England, where even to this day it's attributed to Newton instead. Through Leibniz's work on the calculus, he frees himself from the Cartesian idea that time and space are substances. By 1676, he proposes the kinetic energy of dynamics as a substitute to the conservation of movement expressed in Descartes' mechanics. This new formulation also convinces Leibniz that he can find the final goal or cause of the ordering of nature. In a 1675 letter written to Simon Fouché, Leibniz reflects on some of the formative intellectual experiences during his early years. The letter is interesting since it shows to what extent his discovery of monads is an outgrowth of mechanical philosophy and atomism. When I think of all that Descartes has said that is excellent and original, Leibniz writes, I'm more amazed at what he's done than at some things which he failed to do. I admit that I have not yet been able to read his writings with all the care that I had intended to give them, and as my friends know, it happened that I read most of the other modern philosophers before I read Descartes. Bacon and Gassendi were the first to fall into my hands. Their familiar and easy style was better adapted to a man who wanted to read everything. It's true that I often glanced through Galileo and Descartes, but since I've only recently become a geometrician, I was soon repelled by their style of writing, which requires deep meditation. Yet what I know of the metaphysical and physical meditations of Descartes has come almost entirely from the reading of a number of books written in a more popular style which report his opinions. On moving back to Hanover in 1677, where he serves variously as librarian and counselor under the Catholic Duke of Brunswick, Leibniz works on a wide variety of subjects. Leibniz devotes much energy during the 1680s to the elaboration of a metaphysical system that is grounded in the universal or divine cause of all being, and that reduces reason to an algebra of human thought. At the same time, he's appointed court historian in 1685 and is sent on a three-year mission beginning in 1687 to Italy in order to research the genealogical origins and princely pretensions of the ducal house of Brunswick. This is, needless to say, an instructive journey for Leibniz. Like other figures I've considered in this series on the human machine, Vesalius, 
Harvey, Descartes, and Hobbes, Leibniz makes Italian travels an opportunity to meet some of the leading scientists and philosophers of the day. Starting with the Discourse on Metaphysics, which he writes in 1686, Leibniz pushes ahead his work on combinations and the universal characteristic and integrates them into an all-embracing philosophical system. This system is too dense and complicated for me to describe during a single episode of The Human Machine. But let me just say that Leibniz is aware of the need to defend metaphysics, the reputation of which is under pressure during his lifetime. The modern thrust of Leibniz is striking, his faith in algebra and number. But at the same time, in First Truths, he promotes a Neoplatonic idea that has gained new relevance in recent years. And listen very carefully to the following words by Leibniz. The complete and perfect concept of an individual substance involves all its predicates, past, present, and future. For certainly, it is already true now that a future predicate will be a predicate in the future, and so it's contained in the concept of the thing. Therefore, there's contained in the perfect individual concepts of Peter or Judas, considered as merely possible concepts, and setting aside the divine decree to create them, everything that will happen to them, whether necessarily or freely. Every individual substance involves the whole universe in its perfect concept, and all that exists in the universe has existed or will exist. I find this thought of Leibniz's utterly fascinating, because an individual substance involves all its predicates, past, present, and future, and it points to all the dimensions of the universe. And I suppose the universe points to all the dimensions within this individual substance. It's during 1686 that Leibniz elaborates his view of God, the creator of the universe, in the Discourse on Metaphysics. For Leibniz, God is perfect, infinite, supremely good. He does things in the most desirable way and cannot have done anything better. It's impossible for us to understand the particular reasons which lead God to arrange the universe as he does, and the proper attitude for humans in the face of God is complete contentment and acceptance. However, according to Leibniz, we can understand divine perfection by means of analogy. He writes, We can say that someone who behaves perfectly is like an expert geometer who knows how to find the best construction for a problem, or like a good architect who utilizes the location and the ground for his building in the most advantageous way, leaving nothing discordant 
or which doesn't have the beauty of which it is capable, or like a good head of a household who manages his property in such a way that there is no ground left uncultivated or barren, or like a clever stage manager who produces his effect by the least awkward means that could be found, or like a learned author who gets the most reality into the least space he can. God, for Leibniz, is all and in all, the creator, perfect, infinite, and supremely good. The general principles of corporeal nature and mechanics are ultimately derived from a metaphysical basis, and the universe, for Leibniz, is a vast machine. He writes, I recognize and praise a workman's skill not only by showing what designs he had in making the parts of his machine, but also by explaining the tools he had to make each part, especially when those tools are simple and ingeniously contrived. God is such a skillful worker that he could produce a machine a thousand times more ingenious than those of our bodies, using only various quite simple fluids that we expressly produced, so that ordinary laws of nature were all it took to organize them in the appropriate way to produce such an admirable effect. For Leibniz, this machine-like universe has been created by God to ensure the greatest possible happiness of the inhabitants. For happiness is to people what perfection is to beings, and if the first principle of the existence of the physical world is the decision to give it the greatest possible perfection, then the first aim for the moral world, or the city of God, which is the noblest part of the universe, must be to spread in it the greatest happiness. During the 1690s and the first decade of the 18th century, Leibniz enjoys considerable renown for his works on science and mathematics. He works on linguistics and the prehistoric origins of Europeans, including the Germans. He writes extensively about ethics and politics, and he develops the notion of the pre-established harmony between body and soul, which sets him apart from Descartes, as well as the system of monodology, which he believes underlies all physical reality. Leibniz desires to reconcile, to harmonize, to identify in the works of nature the ordering hand of God, to demonstrate that man is a metaphysical machine, and to anchor this interpretation in a single, all-embracing philosophical system. Let's just stop a moment and remember these words, metaphysical machine, something quite new in the history of the human machine. If man is, for Leibniz, a metaphysical machine made up of monads duly created by God, then it's important to start with God and his creation and understand how, in a totally interconnected, created, machine-like universe, each indivisible monad implicitly contains a summary or mirror image of the whole. So if the building blocks, as it were, of the universe and of all living matter are monads, 
Each monad contains a summary or mirror image of the whole. What a fascinating idea. By coming up with the notion of the monad, Leibniz articulates views which might seem fantastical, intriguing, or even obscure today, but they are still strangely relevant. His view of preformation is partially compatible with the idea in genetics today that genes are preformed, have a very long ancestry, in fact, going back to the very origins of life billions of years ago, and contain digital information which will, in large part, determine the future growth and resistance to disease of each human machine according to universal laws. Fortunately, Leibniz is coherent, although he's often obscure. God, the creator for Leibniz, is perfectly powerful and wise. He presides over a great ocean-like universe, whither flow the rivers of all blessed creatures. God acts according to the laws of physics, but freely. What he's created does not need to be mended. That is, he does not need to intervene in order constantly to refashion his creation. Since he has pre-established harmony in his universe and foreseen everything, all parts of God's creation are connected. The majesty of nature as created by God cannot be compared to the originality of human inventions. It's true that man could make an automaton that could walk around for a time and turn precisely at street corners, but this would still fall well short of the metaphysical machine of man, the human being as created by God. Spiritual automata, for Leibniz, contain everything that is beautiful in mechanism, but by virtue of preformation, of mirroring from all time in their monad-like parts the entire universe, as well as the perfections of God, they go well beyond mechanism. Leibniz writes, For it's plain that every simple substance embraces the whole universe in its confused perceptions or sensations, and that the succession of these perceptions is regulated by the particular nature of this substance, but in a manner which always expresses all the nature of the universe. So each created substance, made up of monads, mirrors the whole. A sentient or thinking being is not a mechanical thing, like a watch or a mill, Humans and animals alike have immaterial souls. Nevertheless, the human soul can be conceived as a most exact immaterial automaton or metaphysical machine. There are several kinds of correspondences in the machine-like universe that God has created. First, everything is interconnected, so the present is big with the future. Second, man is a microcosm, just as the universe is a macrocosm. Third, the human being is a microcosm since he or she is like a little god in his or her own world. And fourth, man is in God's image and likeness in having the ability to reason and to exercise free will. Leibniz's concept of the human machine goes a step further in the early 1690s when he develops the concept of the monad, the ultimate indivisible spiritual substance pervading the entire universe. By expressing the view that the universe is made up of monads, Leibniz manages to find a single principle capable, apparently, of holding his system of metaphysics together. Monadology, in effect, 
sums up the essence of Leibniz's life work, as well as his lifelong desire to articulate a unified, synthetic view of metaphysics in a single, reasonably brief text. It describes the machine-like universe and the mechanism of man as a way of bringing people back to a greater moral awareness of God's role in the universe. At this point, I'll quote to you uh, from Monadology 64, where Leibniz states that each organic body of a living being is a kind of divine machine or natural automaton, which infinitely surpasses all artificial automata. To quote Leibniz, for a machine made by human artifice is not a machine in each of its parts. For example, the tooth of a brass wheel has parts or pieces which to us are no longer artificial things and no longer have something recognizably machine-like about them, reflecting the use for which the wheel is intended. But the machines of nature, namely living organisms, are still machines, even in their smallest parts, and it goes on to infinity. It is this that constitutes the difference between nature and artifice that is, between divine artifice and ours, between what God creates and what we fashion. From there, Leibniz goes on to state that the soul is indestructible, since it's the mirror of an indestructible universe, and in the same way the animal is indestructible, although its bodily mechanism may at death leave off or take on organic coverings. Spirits can enter into a kind of community with God, who is to them what an inventor is to a machine and a prince to his subjects. If the city of God, this truly universal monarchy, contains the assemblage of all spirits and is a moral world within the natural world, then God has also created a perfect harmony between two natural realms, between the physical realm of nature and the moral realm of grace. God is both the architect of the mechanism of the universe and the monarch of the divine city of spirits. I'll just say that the ideas and values serving as the foundation for Leibniz's view of the human machine are his visionary, albeit speculative, reach, the revolutionary character of his mathematics, his passion for practical applications of knowledge of mathematics and natural philosophy, his nostalgic longing for the apparent unity and stability of medieval Europe, his fascination with hermetic values, optimism about the wisdom of God in creating our machine-like world and everything in it, and his desire to bring together the best of the Western philosophical tradition in an original new synthesis. And when I say synthesis, I mean that Leibniz devotes his life to reconciling different dimensions of existence. He doesn't focus on a single dimension, 
Leibniz's whole mental attitude is to reconcile, to bridge, to link, to bring back together what has been torn asunder. Well, that's it for The Human Machine this time. The next episode is going to be devoted to La Métrie, a mid-18th century figure full of fun and wit and who saw the human being as a machine and also sometimes compared humans to plants. Also very interesting to note. La Métrie coming from the medical world. If you would like to know more about my ongoing creative works, from books, translations, films, and blogs to Wild Trekker, check out my author's website at www.evidencia.net. And Evidencia is spelt with the letter N and also the letter T, because this is, after all, the Latin word for evidence, one of the foundations of modern science. The opening theme at the beginning of each Wild Trekker podcast is sung by Marie Frenette, with me accompanying her on the piano. Now here's Marie Frenette singing the closing theme of Wild Trekker, accompanied by Pascal Demel on the guitar. Let's get together soon. This Wild Trekker episode is copyright 2021, George Toombs, all rights reserved. Mm-hmm.